pray and thank the Lord and ask him to help us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. Oh, we cling to your truths. They are always right. They are righteous altogether. And Lord, we can turn to your word and we find what you want us to know. You avail yourself to us. You show us who you are through the word of God. We know you and love you. We grasp the depth of the gospel. We understand our sinful position and how wretched we were and how unsavable we were by ourselves. And we study the scriptures and see that you did a miraculous work. And Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity. Thank you that our governor in Florida has been open and we've been able to meet, Lord. We do pray for our brothers and sisters in places like California and around the globe, Lord, that continue to be shut away from worship. We pray you'd give them strength, Lord, as they continue to find ways to meet and and continue to fulfill the great commands of not forsaking themselves together. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries overseas. We certainly lift them up as well. Challenging times for them, Lord. Many dictatorships and very difficult times, Lord. Give them, give them thoughts and ideas and understanding of how to care for their people and reach people with the gospel during these times. Lord, thank you for your word. Open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth of God's word today. In Jesus' name, amen. During this portion of Mark that I've been in, as we really look at the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have found myself over and over in Isaiah 53. Even as I go to prepare the next section of Scripture, here we are at the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, the arrest of the suffering servant, I always keep going back to Isaiah 53. It prepares my heart to understand what God had laid down for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he was asking him to do. This week I was particularly focusing on verse 11. I want to read that verse to you, Isaiah 53. The preceding verse tells us that God is going to richly bless the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done. And we see that after the resurrection, Jesus himself said, The Father has given me all authority on heaven and earth. But in verse 11, he makes this statement, and wow, does that hit in our text today. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says this, as a result of the anguish of his soul. Now let me stop right there. That's not a word we use or throw around too lightly, is it? Listen to that again. At the result of the anguish of his soul. How would you describe anguish? Have any of you ever been where a place where you say, my soul is in anguish? This is our Lord. This is him being confronted with what it was going to take to save you and I. You can see the heaviness of what the Lord was going through. Then God's word says this, and he will see it and be satisfied. The father will look at the anguish of the son of God, his very son, the full representation of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll look on his anguish and be satisfied. Now that's both disturbing and comforting, isn't it? We find that the father judges the son as though he committed our sin. He's in full anguish as he's separated from his father, as he feels the weight of our sin upon him and the wages of that sin was death. But the Bible says that God was satisfied with it. Isn't that beautiful? He's satisfied for what the Lord went through on our part 
And then the the verse goes on to say this, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, will justify many. Isn't that beautiful? Through the anguish and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I, those who are true believers in this room or listening or watching at home, we are declared righteous through the anguishing, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. And when we look at this, when we look at this text, this is a portion of it. This is part of this Passion Week and this anxiety of of extreme amount of what the Lord goes through. Not anxiety like we have and a sinful anxiety. He is, is about ready to bear the weight of our sins and the separation In our previous study, we found Jesus in the garden. And there he was already enduring one of the greatest challenges. Think about what he was doing. We looked at this in previous sermons. He, in his humanity, was understanding what he was going to go through, the pain and sorrow. Just think about the abuse we'll see him go through in the next few weeks, the beatings and mockings and punchings and whippings and all of that. The Lord knew that was coming upon him. And yet I don't think that's what the greatest anguish was. I think he knew in his deity that he was going to be separated from his father. There was a point (coughs) as the Lord is in the garden and praying that the faithful son of God realizes this is the cup God has for me. You say, well, didn't he know that? In his humanity, Jesus operated mostly in his humanity on earth. He never used his supernatural strength to to help him get through difficulties. He suffered like us. So there was a point in that sessions of three prayers that he's having in the garden while his disciples are off sleeping, he's praying. There's a point where he says, all right, Father, this is what you have for me. And he sets his face towards the cross. It seems possible that a peace flooded over him as he understood this would take steadfast faithfulness. Isn't it interesting Jesus doesn't hide from what's coming. He knows now that Judas is on the way and he boldly faces this hostile crowd led by Judas. And yet after in-depth conversation, in-depth communion with the Father, he does not withhold anything. He goes forward. For years the religious leaders had been trying to um, depose him, trying to discredit him, and they eventually sought to destroy him. But now, think about this, one of Jesus' own is selling him out. It's an amazing thought. They had tried over and over, trying to find ways that they could seize him, find ways that they could stop him, and now one of his own comes forward. And the religious leader sees this moment, and the events begin to move quickly. Once Judas agreed to the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sum of 30 pieces of silver, the the deal went down and things began to move. Judas lines lines up the place. He knows Jesus will be in the garden after that that upper room supper. Within hours, Jesus is arrested. And now he's taken after that right in front of the Sanhedrin in an illegal nighttime trial. Hours after that, just as the sun is coming up, he's now put in front of pagan rulers. A Jewish man is taken and put in front of pagan rulers. 
And there Pilate and Herod try him and abuse him. After being tortured by godless men, Jesus is paraded through the city of David, bearing his own cross. He's led outside the walls, outside the city, and there he dies on a hill called Golgotha. From the time of this, we're going to study today, in verse, starting in verse 43, 15 hours later, Jesus is dead on a cross. 15 hours. And there are truly agonizing 15 hours. But it is now the perfect plan of God. This perfect sacrificial substitutionary lamb, the final lamb in these 15 hours is being prepared and he will be sacrificed for our sins. That was his message throughout his ministry. He said to the disciples over and over, I have come to die. I will be taken away by godless men I will be hung on a cross, I will die, I will be buried, and I will raise again. You say, well, why did he do that? Because that was the message from the beginning. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, a seed will come from the woman. It was a promise from God. I will bring one who will, what? Crush the head of Satan. And this is the way God was going to crush the head of Satan was the death of his son. This had been the plan. And as you learn to read your Bible and read it as a whole and begin to understand what we call a biblical theology, this is the message of the Bible. It's either Christ has come, he is the seed, he is the one that can release us from our slavery to sin, or those of us as New Testament Christians, we look back and realize, oh, it was all talking about Jesus. And so here as we drop into the text, this is the fulfillment of that promise in the garden so many years ago. Well, this morning, it's important to see this critical part of the Passion Week. We don't want to skip anything that happens. This is a dramatic scene. You have to understand, you have these sleepy-eyed disciples who are now, all of a sudden, suddenly awakened by a crowd that's coming, a hostile crowd. We have to understand this crowd believes they're doing what God sent them to do. They, they think they're righteous in getting rid of this person. The forefront of the crowd is a traitor. He's one who's walked and talked with Jesus. Doubtlessly has a very poor understanding of who he's dealing with. Then there's an impulsive disciple that's gonna be among them. He certainly loves the Lord Jesus Christ, but he can't contain his own flesh because he failed to pray and prepare himself. Furthermore, the text will prove that just like Isaiah 53 says, he will die alone. Everyone will forsake him. This is a moving text, and I want to encourage you to look at this and say, Lord, thank you for what you went through for me. Let me give you five thoughts this morning. Number one, the unjustified crime scene. The unjustified crime scene. Look at verse 43 with me as we remember what Josh read to us here. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the, er and the elders. Well, the narrative's not clear that how long Jesus prayed. He, he probably prayed for an hour, maybe two hours. And that's all, why that's all taking place, why the, father is, why the son is communing with the father, the disciples are over sleeping. <laughs> he had already given them a warning that they should pray lest they fall into temptation, but they failed to heed that. The man of sorrows is feeling the weightiness of the cup that he must drink. 
And after three times of prayer, he realizes this is the Father's plan. We are moving forward with this. When he's done with that, you remember he comes back to Peter, James, and John, and he begins to try to encourage them and, and remind them that they should stay alert. There's temptation coming. And, and, the, and the Bible says in this verse, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas. So somewhere along the line as he's speaking with these three, Peter, James, and John, and they're gathering the other eight, here comes Judas. Now I want you to see the scene. I think you can see this. It's very quiet in the gardens, very late at night. Somewhere probably around midnight. And if you're ever one who likes being out in the woods or out in the hills, one of the things we love about it is just the solidarity of it. It's quiet out there. You can hear yourself think. Jesus has been off and a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John, crying out, the Bible said, with loud tears and, and before his father. It's a very quiet, surreal place. But all of a sudden now, that garden has become an unjustified crime scene. There are hundreds of people now invading it. Notice the text says that one of the 12, while, they were, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, all the gospel recordings use this seemingly unnecessary identification. But I believe that, that though the writers knew it was Judas, I believe it serves to deepen the sense of horror of what was about ready to happen. This was, this was not some random guy. This was one of theirs. This was one of their men. This is one of them that walked and talked with Jesus, watched children raised from the dead, watched bleeding widows uh, rescued from that infirmity, uh, watched people get fed and God create food for them, calm seas and cast out demons. And I think this text shows this sense of horror as the disciples looked and realized that's one of ours who's coming to arrest the Lord Jesus. Notice the next phrase says, they came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. As Dr. Luke reaccounts this scene in Acts chapter one as he writes to Theophilus in the early church, he says this about it in chapter one, verse 16. Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. This is sobering. This is sobering. This is the warnings of the Bible that say that there are those who taste the goodness of God but never understand him and in the end turn against him. Judas was the guide to a hostile crowd. Mark doesn't tell us who really was in the crowd, except that they were guided by Judas and the weapons that they carried. John tells us that the Roman soldiers accompanied, uh, were accompanied by a temple police. The soldiers would have been carrying the swords because in this time it was illegal for a Jew who was they're captive to the Romans to have a sword. So most likely the temple police had the clubs. The Roman soldiers had the swords. Now, these soldiers most likely came from a fort that was just within the walls of Jerusalem, not too far from the temple. And clearly these Jewish leaders, they feared the people, and, and so they, they sought protection from the Romans to assist them into killing Jesus. This was the goal, to gather the Romans to help them. But somehow the Jewish leaders persuaded them, and I thought often about that, and most likely they did something like this. 
This is my thoughts here. Judas is like Barabbas. He is going to get these people. He already has a band of men, and he is going to turn against Rome. It was a lie, wasn't it? Not really hard to start fear-mongering. This is exactly what they were doing, and they were very good at that. Put out a product that's a lie, but make it look good, and people will follow you. Do we not see that today? constantly of the threat of false things coming at us and we have to have a biblical worldview to understand them and this is most likely what they did. Think about it. Most of these soldiers probably didn't even know who Jesus was. He spent all of about two weeks in Jerusalem in his entire ministry. He has spent his life in Galilee. These men may have heard of his triumphal entry. Maybe they heard of his teaching down at the temple but most of these men have no ideas. They're being led by someone who's a liar. And they believe him. And they follow him. They would have wanted to put down this threat as quick as possible if they believed it was someone like Barabbas who was accused of insurrection. They would have wanted to put this, and so they send this overwhelming force. Now look, a cohort, the Bible says, John says they sent a cohort. It would be anywhere from 200 soldiers to 6,000 soldiers. Now, Dallas, it was probably on the smaller side, but can you imagine that? And the Garden, the garden of, of Gethsemane is not that big. You might have seen pictures. Some of you have been over there. Can you imagine this mass carrying torches with swords and clubs now closing in on the, the only innocent man in all of history who's only done good to the nation of Israel, fed them, healed them, preached to them, taught them, and shown the love of God well, this hostile crowd was led by religious leaders. Luke chapter 22, verse 52 says those leaders were actually there with them. And these leaders brought their own authority. They brought the temple police. And verse 49 says that Jesus says, well, why didn't you arrest me then? So it refers that these temple police had authority within the bounds of the temple. Rome would let them arrest people. So here we have this massive crowd, they're well armed, and John tells us they're carrying torches. Not only this, that not only that it's an unjust crime scene, but it's a godless mob who are draw, driven by fear and by lies. Because nothing what they had believed was true about the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark in this verse, this verse in 43 gives us a description of the ones who sent them, and, and Luke reminds us that they were part of it. It's called, it was from the Sanhedrin. And you'll notice that it's a cross-section of those that make up the Sanhedrin. There would have been Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, and these men were well known to hate each other. In fact, they hated each other all the way for hundreds of years till this point in time. They found a, like, a like-minded way to hate somebody. And their sin and their hatred towards God and his son brought them together. And they united here to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had unveiled their unbiblical system. When he was with them, he exposed that they had a system based on works. He showed them that they could never get to him by works. They could never fulfill the law. They could never do all those things. Only by him who was the way, the truth, and the life could you see the Father. He exposed that they were were presenting a package of lies to his people. And they didn't care for that much. Earlier that week, he had 
preached a sermon out of Matthew 23 called what we call the woe passages. And there he says, you, you take a proselyte. You're a blind guide to proselytes. And you take a proselyte and you make them twice the son of hell as yourself. See, Jesus held nothing back. He does not care for people who lead people to hell who change the gospel, who, who misinterpret his words. If that wasn't enough, on the, probably the most wealthiest day or the most strongest economic day of their year, coming Passover and the selling of lambs and turtle doves and, and all the exchange of money goes on, Jesus goes in and cleans the whole place out. Look, they didn't love him at all. But what Jesus was doing is he showed that they feared Rome and they loved money and power far more than they loved God. And that doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Society after society after society in our fallen world loves power, money. They want prestige. And they'll do anything to get it. That's why elections and things that go on around our world as we watch. There's so much that goes beyond the scene. Power controls man. Money controls man. But not a Christian. It shouldn't have a place in our life in that way. So Jesus has exposed their hearts. They're full of jealousy and fear and hatred. And now in this scene in the garden, there's these angry men with swords, clubs, torches, and they're arresting the only innocent man who has ever put feet on this earth. Second thought. Blind guides of the lost in the depth of their sin. Blind guides of the lost in the depth of their sin. To understand this passage, I want to refer to a passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. The Bible says there that because you and I have flesh and blood, he also shared in that. And what that simply means is that Jesus Christ, God, added to his nature, added to his divine nature, humanity. Because we are flesh and blood, he added to so he could represent us, and most importantly, so he could die. Because you can't kill God. So, here you have this scene in the garden. Jesus, in his humanity, looks like the rest of men. I don't know if you've seen pictures where there's a picture of Jesus in the upper room or somewhere along the line. Someone paints something. He's got a little halo around him, and he looks way better modelish, kind of like a model worse than, you know, Peter and John and those other guys. Well, that's not true. In fact, Isaiah 53 says, there was nothing stately about him that would draw your attention to him. He was an ordinary, Middle Eastern-looking man with a bunch of other disciples that were there. And think about this, in the middle of night, with only the light of torches, Jesus would have been very difficult to spot. So look at verse 44. Now he who was betraying him, that's Judas, had given them a signal saying, Whom, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. Now, the basic meaning of betraying here is to hand one over. Judas chose to hand over Jesus with a kiss. Now, a kiss is such an intimate thing, isn't it? Men, we only give that to our wives. It belongs to no one else but to them. It's a special intimate thing. In the Middle Eastern world, there was kisses given, maybe on the hand or even on the feet or a piece of the garment that showed respect for someone. But to kiss somebody on the cheek was an intimate thing. It was, it was a mark of deep friendship and then this, deep loyalty. And this is what Judas chose. 
And doubtlessly, Judas did not fully understand who he was dealing with because likely, Judas is trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to conceal this approach. Maybe I can kiss him and he'll not think anything's happening. He's just wondered where I went and I've come back. (laughs) Oh, he doesn't know who he's dealing with. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Look at verse 45. After coming, Judas immediately went up to him and said, Rabbi, that's teacher, and kissed him. Now clearly, motivated by by Satan and greed, uh, Judas is approaching Jesus. And and what's fascinating is you look at the harmony of the Gospels, and one of the things I love about teaching through the Gospels is I get to look at all four books and figure this out, what's all happening. Luke chapter 22, 48 reminds us that Jesus asked Judas a question right before he leans to kiss him. Jesus says this, Judas, are you portraying, betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I don't think I would have went on with that after he said that. But this is what happens when you're, when you're a sinner and you're blind to the things of God, you do stupid things. We've all done them. But this is betraying the Son of God, the creator of the world, the Savior of the world. And he says, are you betraying the Son of Man, your representative? That Son of Man's an incredible term. The only hope to see the Father. That's what that term means. Are you betraying me? Jesus wasn't fooled a bit by Judas in his little secret betrayal tactics. And he had already predicted, and back in verse 20 and 21, you can see that there. He said, as one of the 12 who dips in the bowl with me, and for the Son of Man will go just as is written, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It's better that he isn't born. So Jesus had already predicted this would happen. Now, amazingly, Jesus allows Judas to kiss him And then he makes this sobering statement, Matthew 26, 50. He says, friend, do what you've come for. Oh, my goodness. Friend, do what you've come for. In this world, Satan doesn't have to consume every individual. He is not omnipresent. But he can find one who will spread lies to the masses, and they will follow. And I doubt many of these men fully understood who Jesus was, but they believed the lie and they were more than willing to, willing to destroy a stranger because of those who led them in that direction. And Judas is that one, and Jesus refers to him, come do what you had. Lead this group to what you've come to do. Look at verse 46 with me. The Bible says they laid hands on him and seized him. After Jesus confronts Judas, they arrest the Lord. John chapter 18, verse 12 says that they tied him, tied his hands, tied him up, and escorted him back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? The Lord Jesus Christ, with those hands, opened the deaf's ears, put mud on them, and made the blind to see, blessed the food, and God created food for thousands upon thousands. They handcuffed him and led him away. But what's amazing as you study this text, nowhere do we see Jesus resist. There's no struggle. There's no sign of anger or anxiety. He simply is entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he is such a great example of that. Mark does not tell us what happens to Judas, but Matthew does. And Matthew wants us to know. Listen to Matthew chapter 27. This is is a little bit troubling, but listen. 
Then when Judas, this is verse three of Matthew chapter 27. Then when Judas, now listen to this, who had betrayed him, now listen to this phrase, saw that he, Jesus, had condemned him. Whew. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The saved are never condemned. I want you to understand, there's a lot of people that come up to me and say, oh, well, I think maybe Judas got in somehow, you know, and he repented. He saw the judge of all men condemn him. We don't know what happened. The narrative doesn't tell us. But look, the text says, he looked and saw that he, Jesus, had condemned him. This is sobering. And it makes me shake at times. He looks into this one who he betrayed for the price of a slave and realizes he's condemned. The text goes on to say he felt remorse. You know, 2 Corinthians 7 says there's a big difference between those who feel sorry for something they got caught and sorrow that leads to repentance. Next week, we'll see Peter as he, as he falls into his sin of fear and he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see in Luke that he runs out and weeps bitterly over a sin. But this text will tell you what happens to Judas. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. A lot, of people, a lot of people confess that they did something wrong. But they said to him, what does this have to do with us? See to it yourself. He threw the pieces of silver in the temple sanctuary and departed. And then this phrase, and he went out and hung himself. He has nothing. He has nothing but his sin and condemnation to deal with. In fact, the book of Acts records, Acts records that Judas could not even hang himself properly. The rope broke. His body falls down, hits the rocks, and splits open. And listen, as horrible as death as that may sound and as gruesome as that suicide was, there was much, more, much worse waiting him. Upon his death, he entered into eternity as one who did not repent of his sin and the betrayal of the Son of Man. Truly, it would have been better if he was not born. In fact, doubtlessly, he's the greatest example of the most wasted opportunity. He walked and talked with our Lord, ever given to a human. Judas is now tormented. He awaits final judgment of the lake of fire. When we were at camp, one of the things I did with the kids, I was working through the book of Hebrews and that Jesus is greatest at all. But one day I took on, I wanted them to see the warning passages of the book of Hebrews. You can find them in chapter 2 and 6 and 10 and 12 and so forth. There's these warning passages. They're not lost to salvation passages. They're warning people who know of Jesus, who have even tasted him, and yet in the end reject him. One very pointed passage we looked at was Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? It's a warning. Look, the Hebrews grew up knowing God. They were given the articles of God. Christ came to earth. He was the long-awaited Messiah. They tasted him. He walked and talked with them. The Jews knew who he was. He knew that he said he was the Messiah, the Son of God. They knew that. And yet many of them took that knowledge and trampled it. And God's word says there's a severe judgment. And let me put this into this time. 
children, parents, grandparents, all kinds of people down through the ages, particularly in America in our freedom, have sat under the preaching of God's word. Sermon after sermon, Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson, and in the end say, ah, I don't need it. I'll get there some way. Or maybe there's not even a God. Oh my goodness. You've had the benefit of hearing God's word and you reject it. You've tasted the work of the Spirit, how he changes people's life, how he takes the very word of God and pierces the heart of a believer. You've watched that happen and in the end you reject him. Oh, the Bible says in this text, there's a severe punishment. If you don't believe in the depths of hell, I would challenge you to look at this text, along with other texts that remind us that God will judge according to their deeds. Now, one more scene that I have to paint just before we move on. John chapter 18, verses four through six. There's one more scene. The crowd's coming up. Judas is there just before he is about ready to kiss them. Jesus knowing, the Bible says in verse four, John chapter 18, Jesus knowing all things that were coming upon him went forward and said, whom do you seek? Now remember it's dark. They're trying to figure out who he is and where he is. And they answer him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to him, I am he. And Judas also who was betraying them was standing with them. So when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I'm leaving at that point. <laughs> this is one of the I am passages. Sometimes we don't talk about, right? We talk about I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the great shepherd. All of those things. Do we ever do this? I am Yahweh. <laughs> He's using a statement right out of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And at that name, everybody hits the deck. I- I'm leaving. <laughs> I mean, I would think... But this is a blindness, a sin. This is, why we, this is why this point is about. It's a blindness. They get up. And, and unfortunately, I think maybe this emboldened Peter. And let's look at the next point. Three, a spiritually unprepared follower and a merciful God. Look at verse 47 with me. But one of those who stood, who stood by drew his sword. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark gives this vague expression, leaving the individual unidentified. Matthew says that it was one of the 12, and John just comes out and said, it's Simon Peter. (laughs) Thanks, John. Uh, It's all inspired by the Spirit of God. And then John tells us who the victim is. It's Malchus, it's the high priest's slave. Now, what's not recorded here, and when they left the upper room, there was many conversations that happened. Mark took on one of them. Luke takes on some of the other ones. Well, in Luke chapter 22, Luke takes on a conversation that happens from the upper room to that Mount of Olives. And one of them was this. Jesus said, when I sent you out before, I told you not to take money belts, not take an extra coat, don't take a sword. Then he says, now I'm telling you, sell your coat and get a sword. And the conversation goes on and all of a sudden one of the disciples says, well, I have two swords. Well, guess who ended up with one? Peter. Peter's now got a sword. And from that conversation, and then probably from this falling down of this group, Peter goes, let's get him. <laughs> he, he is not waiting for anything. He's going to act. And Luke chapter twenty-two forty-nine 49 records that one of the disciples asking Jesus if they should strike now. Could have been Peter, the Bible doesn't say. But before Jesus can give the answer, Peter comes out of his shoes and goes after this, this slave. 
I don't think his aiming was very good, and Malchus loses an ear over it. Now, who was this Malchus? Well, he's not a Roman soldier. He's not from the temple police there. He's probably, most likely, the trusted slave of Caiaphas. That's the, the high priest of the year. That's where they're going to take Jesus for this illegal night trail, trial. And so this is, this is man probably sent, probably Caiaphas said, you go stick very close to Judas. I really don't trust him. So he was probably sent there to watch over Judas, make sure Judas doesn't do something. They already paid him the silver. Let's get our Jesus out of this. So he's probably there. And then this bodes well for Peter. Because Peter here shortly is going to trail behind Jesus and he's going to end up in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house where Jesus is being tried in a room. And in that courtyard, guess who's going to show up? The sister of the slave. And she's going to go, hey, (laughs) didn't you cut my brother's ear off? And he'll start the denials. So this is a problem. And unfortunately for Peter, uh, the slave really... Really, fortunately for the people, the slave must have moved and only lost the ear. But I imagine Peter stood there and he could not, in his flesh, idly sit by and see them to arrest his Messiah. But as usual, Peter's impulsive love is misdirected and it's reason why. Jesus said, you pray. Satan wants to sift you. You're gonna fall into temptation if you don't pray. Isn't that a great admonishment for all of us? And yet he didn't. He fell asleep. Now again, the harmony of the gospel picks up the rest of the story and the the Lord um, puts an end to Peter's violent response here. And basically he says in Luke chapter 22, 51, look, the kingdom of God is not gonna be brought in through violence. And he says this word, stop, no more of this. And then with an unrequested act of divine power and mercy, our Lord Jesus touches the ear of Malchus. And, and, I, and I think like he did in so many ways, he just created the ear. You, you know, can't tell me, look, this was not a surgeon's scalpel. This was a, a sword. <laughs> there wasn't much left of that ear, let alone the side of his head probably. And, and the Lord, unrequested, just reaches out and touches and heals him, showing kindness in the middle of great abuse. Jesus says then, all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Well, in other words, what I believe Jesus is doing, he's instructing his disciples and us that participating in unlawful killing bears the guilt of murder and warrants a death penalty. A lot of people have struggled with this, and some people say, well, you shouldn't be in the army, you shouldn't be a cop or something like that. I don't think that's what it's at all. He says, you, you take the law into your hands, the law is gonna come get you. That's not the way the kingdom of God is coming in. And so I think that the Lord did not want his church established by those who took the law in his own hand. And then later in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, as this context still rolls along, Jesus reminds his disciples that he could summon 12 legions of angels. That's hundreds and thousands of angels. And we already talked about this in recent sermons. One angel comes and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. This was not a problem for Jesus. You want war? I can do that. I think he's just saying, look, Peter, disciples, I don't need your physical force. And then Matthew continues in verse 54, and Jesus told this impetuous disciple, he said, look, you're not acting in accordance with God. You're not acting with his will. And he said this in, that, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 54, he said, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled 
would say that it must happen in this way. And so the Lord's saying, look, this is all part of the control of God. This is what's gonna happen. Peter's saying, no, not my Lord. He's saying, no, this is the way I have to go. This is the cup I have to drink. Forethought. A painful and heart-revealing sovereignty of God. A painful and heart-revealing sovereignty of God. Look at verse 48 with me. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Well, I think in Jesus' third prayer, there's no doubt that he finds peace and, and full obedience and full submission to the Father's plan. Our Lord is calm, he's collective, he's unruffled in the garden. He's standing before this well-armed, highly trained, hostile crowd sent to arrest him. And he quietly submits to the arrest, but he protests the manner. You see that? He's already probably cuffed, but he's protesting the manner in what they done. And notice what he says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I was a robber? So in the midst of this chaotic scene, there's already been an ear chopped off and a healing and they've fallen down and all this going. Jesus sums up their actions. And he, he says, look, am I a violent criminal? What, what kind of scene is this? Is this necessary to bring out this excessive military force against me? He uses the term thief, right? He says, you treat me like a thief. Well, that was, the word means an armed bandit of some sort and one that's trying to elude, capture. Well, their actions, their actions were done under darkness. Their actions were hidden. Their actions were showing that they're the perpetrators, not the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he reminds them of that. Look at the rest of that in verse 49, the latter part of that verse. But this has taken place to fulfill, oh, excuse me, um, verse part of, excuse me, verse 49. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. That's where I was after. And so Jesus is referring most likely to the early part of the week. Because remember, he spent most of his ministry in the northern part of Israel. But he says, look, I've been here this past week. Day after day, I taught you in the temple. I took on the Pharisees. I answered all their questions as they tried to trap me. I was there ministering to the people. And he says, I was with you. And he was reminding them that we were face to face and now you're doing this? Again, Jesus is exposing their hearts. And if Jesus was such a threat to Rome as the Jews proclaimed him to be, why didn't they arrest him earlier that week? It was really interesting. When you get to John chapter 19, Jesus has been before Pilate and Pilate is doing his best to release Jesus in his own humanness. I think it's two or three times he claims him to be innocent. And finally, he says, look, I, I find no fault in him. And then the Jews, led by these religious leaders, cry out and said, if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar. Now these are people hated Rome, despised their captivity. And you can see they were using Rome for their own gain. And they used Rome to capture our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this, he's talking about a week of powerful teaching. The people were enamored with him. And in the middle of that, he exposes their fear, their jealousy, and their true identity of darkness. Look at the end of verse 49. But this must take place to fulfill the scriptures. In other words, you did not arrest me then because the scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled. So you, you, you would have done that. Humanly, there was no other reason why to not do it then. But God has a bigger plan. 
Now, everything's running according to the Father's plan. The Father has a schedule. The sovereign triune God sat down, wrote this down before the foundations of the world. The Lord is executing it perfectly. And even this hostile crowd, uh, hostile towards Christ, these false teachers, they are part of this plan, and even Judas. Now, remember earlier I said Acts chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that said that the denial, the betrayal of Judas was the Father's will. It was prophesied. Let me give you a couple of verses. Psalms 41, 9, listen to this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is all prophesied. He said, well, why did Judas do this? Well, one, his heart is wicked, but two, this is what God laid down. He is not responsible for sin, but man goes the way God ordains. That's what he does. Isaiah 53 would be a great case. Despised and forsaken, that was the Lord. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, that's our Lord. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He's fulfilling the scriptures perfectly. Every dot and, and iota he is fulfilling. And then one that struck me the most as I was trying to find verses to link to this where he says all of the scriptures must be fulfilled was Zechariah 13, 7. The first part of this verse just stuns you a little bit. This is God speaking. He says, awake, O sword. Uh-oh. Awake, O sword. God's about ready to strike someone. The Bible goes on to say, against my shepherd. See, a lot of people want to ask the question, who killed Jesus? One of them has to be God. That's a hard one to swallow, isn't it? God put Jesus on the cross and struck him. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. It pleased the Father to what? Crush him. For our iniquities. So here, Jesus is filling all this because God, by his sovereign wisdom, from the foundations of the world, knew there was no other way for a sinful man to get to him except his innocent son be crushed, be stricken for our wages, for our sins, and everyone will flee him. And the verse goes on to say, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's what happens. And you say, well, Scott, I don't know if I get my mind around. That's pretty difficult. You're saying God's using these evil things to bring about his will. Well, that's what he's always done. Because we have a sinful world. Go back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. What did Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, God has the power and authority. He is not responsible for the sin of wicked men. They will judge, be judged for their sin. Peter sums that up. He says, God in for his foreknowledge preordained, predestined the Lord of glory to die, but godless men put him to death. They're responsible for the sin, but God has complete control over it. And this is what God does. Look at verse 50. This is a very sad and short verse. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. Now was the time where the preparation of prayer would have paid off great dividends. You know what prayer helps you in? It keeps you from the temptation of self-preservation. You and I are always trying to preserve ourselves. Do you know that? We're always thinking about ourselves. Think about you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about yourself. Gotta go to the bathroom, need coffee, whatever. You just think about yourself all the time. I do too. And, and when situations come up, we think about how to preserve ourselves, how, how, to, how to make the right call to protect ourselves. We always think that way. You know what prayer does? 
It, cause, it causes you to say, God, not my will, but yours. You told me to take up a cross and deny myself. I can't do that unless I ask you to do the divine work in my life because left to myself, I will always protect myself. See why Jesus asked the disciples to pray? That they don't enter into temptation? You and I need to pray, brothers and sisters. We, we, have, we, have, we are saved. God has taken our sins away. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But you and I know that there's a war waged against the Spirit. And the, way, the one who's waging it is our flesh. It wants, to it wants to self-preserve itself. It wants its way. And it wages war against our souls, Peter says. And so... When you don't pray, you fall into this, and I can't help but see this. Peter had, fe- had failed to pray. Notice this word fled. That means they took off, and they left Jesus alone. It's Jesus had told them that in verse 27. If you look back in the text, he says, all will fall away. That means not one of them would stay. Not even Peter, who promised to die for Jesus, did he stay, he fled. See, there's a painful heart revealing of the sovereignty of God. He does that for us every once in a while. He says, Scott, I'm going to show you your heart. I want to show you how you think about yourself. And every once in a while, maybe more than we like to even admit, he'll let you take a peek into your heart and see how dark it is at times. And you go, oh God, help me trust you. I am so self-centered. I think about myself. And when the time comes to stand for you, I'll think about myself. See, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be those men and women, boys and girls. When, when, when the time comes where we stand for Christ, either through our testimony, our living, walking testimony, or even verbally, we want to stand for him. I don't think there's a Christian in this room that say, I want to do that. I don't think anything in Peter, if you'd have told him he was going to do this, in fact, Jesus did tell him and he still denied it. Flesh is powerful. Flesh is weak, and, and, it's, and the only way it's weakened is by the Spirit of God. The only way that happens is we talk with Him, we commune with Him, we let the Spirit of God lead us. Last thought Jesus was despised and forsaken. Look at verse 51 and 52. A young man was following Him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized Him. But He pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Well, this is a strange recording. It's only found in Mark, and it reads like a personal remembrance. There's, there's nothing in the text that tells us that the young man is Mark, but, but I think, to Mark's credit, what he's trying to do, he's trying to help us understand through the inspiration of the Spirit, is he not only got deserted by his disciples, there was one who did care for him that was among the group, and he left them too. Mark's trying to show us that he suffered alone. Everybody left him. Gone were the people crying Hosanna less than a week ago. Gone were the throngs of people he taught in the temple. Gone were the people that he healed and changed their life expectancy. Gone were his chosen disciples and his followers. He is alone. And I think what Mark is doing, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus died alone. There was no one that could die with him who was equal to be with him. And as mentioned before, I think 
probably this is John Mark. I believe this is my thoughts. I think this maybe his parents had the upper room and maybe he was there and he heard the conversation. Maybe he, he got out of bed and followed them or, or maybe he was laying in bed and he heard the commotion of soldiers and temple police and this group leaving and he knew where Jesus was and he saw they were heading for the mountain. Maybe he just grabbed his sheet and, and it's probably not necessarily, maybe he was completely naked. It's a term used for those who sleep in undergarments but it shows how hot it was. He grabbed his sheet and he ran to go see what's happened. Maybe he was concerned with the Lord Jesus Christ and he finds himself in the middle of this mess. And he says, I gotta get out of here. And he goes to run and somebody seizes him. And they pull his garment and he flees. And I, I just, if this is John Mark, this is self-incriminating, isn't it? But this is the spirit of God to write this way so we would know that Jesus suffered alone. And I want to give Mark some credit. He goes on to serve the apostle Paul. He has a little bit of problems there and Barnabas takes him. Later Paul says, send John Mark to me. He's useful to the ministry. He's a recorder of most of Peter's sermons probably. This is where Mark gets written. This is an incredible young man. He's a young man wanting to follow Jesus. He doesn't have it all together yet, but he wants to follow Jesus. The older guys have already left. The last guy left is a young man. Young men, follow Jesus. You may find yourself alone, but follow Jesus. It may cost you relationships, follow Jesus. Older men, set the example. We should not abandon our Savior in conversation or in lifestyle. There's always somebody who will follow our lead. I think there's much to be thought here. Well, in closing, church, I want you to understand down through Christendom, People have suffered persecution for following the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not over. But I think in this text, as you look at this narrative, there's pretenders who were trying to hide their sinful hearts and Jesus knew it and they ended up committing suicide. Jesus speaks of people like this. He says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before the Father who is in heaven. Can you imagine that? We already saw that verse where, G, where Jesus looks at him and knows, saw that he, Jesus, condemned him. Can you imagine standing and looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, I never knew you. Those are some of the most frightening words to anybody who would ever read the Bible. Because he will separate the sheep and the goats someday. But look, true followers fall into temporary abandonment of their Savior at times. We don't do it on purpose. We're just thinking about ourselves too much. We're too consumed with what people think about us and hurt feelings or, or, or we don't like the church did this or they moved my BFG or whatever. <laughs> and you begin to be selfish. And you'll fall into temptation. And you're just waiting to go through something that you don't need to go through. And so my challenge as I close this out is what are you doing with the word and what are you doing with prayer? Are you totally dependent on me to preach the next sermon? This is the only time you're bathing yourself in the word of God? I, I, I can't study for you. I, I love what I do and I enjoy preaching. That's part of our Christian experience is being under the preached and taught word of God. It's, it's, it's priceless. But listen, brother and sister, if you're not in the word and you're not praying, temptation is coming and you will bend the knee to it. And you can be a believer, which we certainly know Peter and the other disciples were, but they fled when they should have stood. I don't want to flee. I want to stand with my Lord. 
And you say, well, Scott, I don't know. What do I, what, you know, we read the reformers and dads being, you know, watching their children being run through by swords if they don't recant that Jesus Christ is the only way. I don't know if I could go through that. Or you're maybe dying of COVID or you have some other disease. How will I, how will I handle that? God will strengthen you at the time. He'll do that. But one of the ways that we do that is we prepare ourselves. We spend time in the word. We believe God. Jesus says, um, Philip says, you know, how, how do we know this? He says, help my unbelief. I mean, it's this whole understanding. You have to pray that prayer. Have you ever prayed that? Lord, help my unbelief. I don't want to stumble. Help my unbelief. And the way you help it is pray. Spend time with the Lord. Jesus sets that example. Get alone with the Lord. When's the last time you were alone with the Lord? Just you and him. Just you and him talking, being honest, saying, God, what do you want me to do? I want to follow you. You better know God's word because the knowledge of God and who he is as you go to talk to him will help you in that. And you and I can stand in the time of trial and we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. Look, and friends, things are never going back to the same probably in our country. <laughs> Something's tipped. The moral scale of our world has tipped and it ain't tipping back. And we're in the way of a lot of people. They don't care for our view of marriage. They don't care for our view of life. And they don't care of our one way to heaven through Jesus Christ alone. It will be time. I don't know if us adults will see it, but I think our children will. Hey, now's the time. God, I want to commit to a stronger prayer life. I want to commit to reading your word regularly. I want to be prepared. May God help us. Father, thank you for this time in your word. This is essential for us to see this. Thank you for Peter and the apostles and even John Mark, that God, your spirit, had them record this so we could see it and not just wiggle our fingers at Peter for what he did or didn't do, but for us to realize, oh, that could be me. I could fall into great temptation because I don't have much of a prayer life. I don't read the word. I'm dependent on others to give it to me. And so, Lord, teach us, Lord. We want to learn from this, but we also want to see your Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who, who anguished so that you would be satisfied. And here he is, the only innocent man to ever set feet on this world, now handcuffed and being led away for us. So, Lord, let us not meet, miss that. Let that encourage us to be Bible readers, ones who are growing in a personal knowledge of God, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and spending time in prayer. We pray that you do this not only for our good, but mostly for your glory, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and let me give you a blessing before we leave? I've come to enjoy um, our benedictions at the end of our service. I write these thinking of not only you, but my own life. And so let me charge you with this blessing. Listen as I read this and then we'll be dismissed. May the Lord bless you and keep you and may he shine his light upon you. May you hunger and thirst for deeper communication with God. May you grow in your desire to pray and study his word and may you stand in the face of temptation for the glory of God. Amen.